0: Good day, ladies and gentlemen. What if I told you that thousands of years before the arrival of Our Lady of Guadalupe in Mexico to St. Juan Diego, that the peoples of the Americas were prepared for the arrival of the Queen of Heaven, who would bring them to Flower World? That's right. This is some groundbreaking research. There's a book here called Guadalupe and the Flower Prophecy. And the book, by the way, ladies and gentlemen, is available in the description box for this video, or if you're listening on iTunes, Spotify, whatever, you can find it there. And it's subtitled, How God Prepared the Americas for the Conversion for conversion Before the Lady Appeared. It's by Joseph and Monique Gonzalez, and I'm very happy to talk to them. How are you both doing today? We're doing great. Doing great. Thanks for having us. Well, ladies and gentlemen, um, you're lucky you're hearing this because we just did have to deal with some gremlins in the technology, and we're starting recording again, because that's always what happens when you're talking about our ladies. The devil has a little temper tantrum, but he's done now for, for the time being. Mm-hmm. Um, now. My audience knows a little bit, and I'm not going to talk about myself too much because this is, I want to hear about your work and everyone wants to hear this groundbreaking research. Um, But I did want to start off just a little anecdote about why this book was so important to me to receive. And I'm so grateful that it was sent to me and why I'm so grateful to speak to you because in fact, it was Our Lady of Guadalupe who basically saved my soul. I was a, and I know Protestants, if you're watching, I know Jesus Christ saves our soul. I'm just saying, you know, the instrument of that was, was our lady in in Mexico. And I was a lapsed Catholic, fallen away. Doesn't matter. That's a long story. And I had a chance to go to Mexico and I went and I actually went to a connection with your book, the Nesa Coyota dump. They call it Nesa in the region Mm -hmm. of Mexico. And I was there in a shanty town doing mission work and I was not really faithful at the time. And then a week passes in this situation. And then we go visit our Lady of Guadalupe and, uh, it was groundbreaking, earth shattering, life change, never been the same ever since. My poor wife came home, we were recently married and I said, oh, everything's got to change and we've got to literally live completely different and blah, blah, blah. And it was two in the morning and I just got in for, it's, you know, it was 25 degrees or Celsius and sunny in Mexico and it was minus 25 in Ontario where I flew into. Um, so I go inside and she's sleeping three in the morning and, uh. She goes, oh, that's nice, sweetie. (laughs) She doesn't really know what I'm saying. (laughs) Little did she know she was in for it. And um, our lady has has been the most. Our Lady of Guadalupe is the most invaluable thing in our life. So, I would just like to say, from a heartfelt place, thank you for doing this because it's amazing. Thank you so much.
1: Thank
0: you. We're really
2: excited to uh, talk
0: about this. We we're very passionate about this. Also, all right. We have
1: similar experiences with her, so we understand. Well, that's
0: wonderful. (laughs) So let's get into it. So uh, you guys go over a bit of your backstories in the book. Um, Joseph, you are a composer, if I'm not mistaken? Yes. That's cool. And uh, Monique, are you into music as well? And you guys knew each other through research and academia or something?
1: No, what happened was um, I've studied classical voice, but he hired me when I moved back to California as his music editor and score production supervisor. Okay. So um, we worked together, and that's how I got pulled into the story with Our Lady of Guadalupe.
2: Right. Uh, I can explain it quickly. Yeah, I'm sure. a composer. In the early 1990s, I wanted to set Aztec song poetry as text to music. And um, I did a lot of research. I was living in downtown L.A. at the time. And um, I came across this one book called Songs of the Aztecs by John Bearhorst an anthropologist who had just done a translation of half of the uh, known Aztec song poems. And when I opened to the first poem and started getting these flower songs, I said, wait a minute, this song sounds just like the Guadalupe story. Mm-hmm. It's about a singer who's looking for flowers so he can gather those flowers in his tilma and he can show them to the lords and princes. And when I looked to at in the back of the book to the commentary, uh, John Beerhorst said, Well, obviously, this is the source material for a fabricated Guadalupe narrative. And this is the way that the Spanish duped the indigenous. So, fast forward when Monique and I met and she became my assistant in 2009, uh, I was scoring a, a movie. I didn't have any time. So, I handed that book to her mm-hmm. and said, You know, can you find me some more material? to set to music, mm-hmm. and your reaction was you were shocked on this Yeah, book. I mean,
1: because, you know, where do you start? <laughs> it's a huge book of, like, a ton of poetry, very um, obscure poetry, Flip to the very first poem, and it's there. It sounds just like the Juan Diego story. It's, it's about a singer who kind of represents every man who's looking for precious flowers that are shining with light and filled with dew, and he's instructed by a hummingbird to go to the top of the hill where he finds this multitude of flowers that he gathers in his Thoma, then runs down the hill to share with the lords and the princes because he wants to make them as happy as he's just become. So it's it sounds a lot alike, right? So what happened was when I found, when I encountered it, Joseph goes slipped to the back of the book. I saw what was said, and he was Joseph kind of went through a crisis of faith, but he because just had a re- because of it, and he had a reversion right before I met him. So when I came in. And I recognize the similarities. That's when we kind of started what we call our wonderful obsession. It lasts like 14 years of research to kind of, yeah, to kind of figure out what is this? And were they really duped? And what is the truth behind this? And why are the secular scholars saying what they are? And they're using it as ammunition to you know, tear down, to tear tear down, down people's, people's faith, faith, basically. And um, so we want to get behind it. And at a certain point, we realize we'd researched so much that we had to do something with the material, especially because we weren't seeing any of it on the Catholic side see a lot of it on the, you know, the secular side, but not on the Catholic side. So we realize, oh, I guess we have to write a book. So, so there it That's is. That's how it started. <laughs> That's how it started.
0: So, so yeah, so let's break that down. So basically you're looking for material for some orchestral work and, um, you look into these source materials of these, uh, pre, uh, colonization, pre settler, whatever the correct, politically correct term is today, pre-Spanish time of, um, of poetry and things, whatever the time before (laughs) the bad people came. And, um, and you find this stuff that's strikingly like the story of Guadalupe. Now, what you're saying is that was startling because you're thinking to yourself was Guadalupe a myth and that's understandable. Um, Mm -hmm. and it reminds me, well, similar when I, like, basically I, I was, I was not formed growing up. I, I, I am my mom's an Italian immigrant. I am a Catholic from, from baptism at, 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 at infancy, but I wasn't formed. So when I left the faith that I really leave, it was kind of like, I didn't know what I was leaving. But one of the things that got me to sort of just kind of interiorly reject it was these stupid conspiracies about, you know, Jesus being the, the sun, God myth, whatever. Um, oh, and right. you know, they're dumb, but when you don't, when, when you don't have the strong, solid verification, you're thinking to yourself. And, and you're educated in the public education system and you kind of look at everything in that way without even knowing it you go, oh man but then when you come back to the faith um, you realize it's the complete opposite you realize no, Adam and Eve are real our history is real. there's an ancestral memory and everyone had revelation they lost it and it was and then and this yearning for the truth is what comes out in bits and pieces. Would you say that's kind of how you learn to look at it?
2: Well, exactly. Uh, very similar. Uh, you know, it's so funny because we, we've kind of ex, uh, explained this as kind of God's not dead, you know, the, uh, but Hispanic Redans. style, <laughs> that there's, it, there's a similar thing that's kind of happening to debunk Guadalupe that's pushed extremely hard in the academic world. In fact, actually, one lady who came to one of our talks, Uh, She had this experience, in fact, if you want to tell her what, what, tell her what happened.
1: Yeah, it was really affecting because she pretty much stands up and said, thank you for sharing this. I wish I had known this before when I went to college because literally on her first day of college, she went into, you know, an auditorium with a whole bunch of students. And the professor at the front of the class did explicitly say, if you believe Our Lady of Guadalupe is real, You need to get up and walk out because I don't have time for that it's a myth and we're we're here for it to be rational We're rational. (laughs) Um, And so he pretty much laid down that gauntlet to kind of force the students in his classroom, and this is in Mexico City to kind of face our lady Guadalupe and throw her out on the first day of class. Um, and and that's how it was presented to her. And she had to go underground. She lost her faith for a little while and then it went underground, but she, it really hurt her. And a lot of people in the audience were concurring with her saying, yeah, we had similar experiences. So yeah, we that's were really amazing. shocked. That's yeah. so
0: sad, but that's amazing. Cause you know, outside of the Mex, and I've only been to Mexico twice and it was to Mexico city. I never did the, I never did the resort thing. It was always the mission thing. Actually side note, I love Mexico city. I, um, I love that. I don't know what it is, but I've mm-hmm. been there. It feels like you're in the middle of Europe, but in the tropics somehow. It's so cool. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But but anyway, um, yeah, in Mexico, I mean, Guadalupe is everything. So, I mean, yes. here it's going to be going after the evangelicals or whatever and talking about your Jesus, sun god thing. But there, the way to attack what they hold most dear is going to be going after Guadalupe. So that actually makes a lot of sense. I never thought about it like that.
2: Well, you know, that that's just one prong of this war, you know, that that it was all a myth or that, of course, Guadalupe was actually an Aztec princess named Tonantzin um, or that she was it was always syncretism from the very beginning. It was always a mixture of pagan and Catholic beliefs to create a third religion. In fact, a lot of academics call it Mexican Catholicism as, as if it has a special kind of place because it's clearly syncretic. Um, And that is very, very prevalent these days. Uh, A lot of people believe that. But of course, you know, uh, when when we did our research, we found out that that was not the case at all. The indigenous, when they converted, it was a very through authentic conversion. They, They went in front of the priest and burned and broke their pagan idols right in front of them. They give up polygamy They gave up slavery. They gave up so many different things in order they craved this baptism, and they were so badly. And they were trying to prove to the priests that they were worthy of this baptism, that they were committing to it. So there was no sign of syncretism, or uh, you know, they, there's a book that's come out that called uh, um, "Idols Behind the Altars." Sure, that mm-hmm. did happen, but in in the case pertaining to these nine million conversions, it's not there. So there's so many aspects of this to be debunked. Um, and that's not even really the main purpose of our book. Our book is to prove the flower world hypothesis. But of course, in, the, in our own research, we had to get it clear in our <laughs> mind, wait a minute, was this true or not? Is there another way to look at it? And uh, you know, just, just to make sure we were being honest to, to ourselves. So you know, of course we came up with the alternative hypothesis but, um, but anyway, that, that addresses, uh, which we were just talking about, about people saying it was all myth. It was untrue.
0: Okay. So speaking of the indigenous, that's another politically correct thing. When I was growing up in Canada, we we said natives and then it was first nations and then it was aboriginals and then it was indigenous and I'm only 35. So that's a lot of changes in 35 years. But anyway, uh, speaking of the indigenous in Mexico, they had a radical conversion not seen unlike anything that's ever happened in history it took yes. 300 years for rome to become majority uh, catholic it took i mean they came roughly cortez was what 1496 or so somewhere around there um whatever it was he, and then he entered mexico city in 1519 oh 1519 and- goodness yeah i'm wrong about that yeah and uh, so that's fifteen years or whatever, basically. And you've got this insane convert thats just unbelievable. Like that's mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. blows your mind. So how? So this flower world thing is behind this yeah. all. So let's yes. break this down. So tell us what flower world is, and 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 let's go from there.
2: Well, well, the way that we like to explain it is that the the tilma, the millions of conversions, the narrative of Juan Diego above the it's kind of like the tip of the iceberg. Okay, so in order to really explain our hypothesis, there's two prongs to it, two major things that are below the surface, kind of the part one, and the Guadalupe narrative is part two. Below that is Flower World, which is ancient, we're going to get to in just a second. And the other one is Nahua philosophy. Nahua are the names of the various group, indigenous groups were there at the time of the conquest, okay, which includes the Aztecs. So Nahua philosophy uh, is reflected in these flower song poems, and we'll get to that in just a second. But probably the best way to explain this and get into this is to start from the narrative itself, the encounter between Juan Diego and Guadalupe, which happened between December 9th and December 12th in 1531. There were four different accounts written of the narrative. Three of them are in Spanish. One of them was in the native language, Nahuatl, That's what the Nahua people spoke. That is what Juan Diego and the Virgin Mary, (laughs) how they conversed. conversed. Okay. So Monique is going to give a hypothesis. uh, Excuse me. Synopsis. a synopsis <clears throat> of the guadalupe narrative and then we'll, we'll we'll take you back to flower world and my philosophy so go ahead
1: so what's fun about the guadalupe narrative is that we're learning about flower world from the very first words that juan diego says so basically juan diego he's up in the north and from his hometown And he's traveling 14, Mm -hmm. and he's traveling 14 miles to go down to Mexico City so he can go to mass. And along the way, he passes by the Hilatepeac. It's a mountain range that runs north and south. And he hears all of a sudden this incredible music. And he swept, and the moment he hears it, he's swept into this paradise around, like everything's emanating light. There's these colors that can't be seen anywhere else, that all the birds and the hummingbirds, everything's in complete and utter song. It's commuting all this stuff. And upon uh, experiencing it, the first words he says is, am I worthy of what I hear? Which is kind of amazing. And... Um, there's a few reasons we'll get into in just a second, so keep that in mind. Am I worthy of what I hear? And then the second thing he says is, could I be in the place my ancient ancestors spoke of, the flower world paradise in the land of heaven? And when he says the word flower world paradise, he actually uses the indigenous term for it. He says, in and remember that because it's going to come back. And very soon after he he's exclaiming like this, Mary appears. And she introduces herself and she says, I'm the mother of the one true God. She says it all in Nahuatl, Neli Dios," And then she uses four indigenous terms that are very specific to the way they understood the one supreme God. And amongst them was, uh, the, it's, it's a key line is she says, I'm the mother of the God of far and near. And in the native language is in Nawaki. That's another important term. So very soon after that, she gives him a quest. She basically tells him, I need you to go to the bishop and convince him to have a chapel built in my son's honor at this location. So a hero's journey basically is started. And Juan Diego encounters different obstacles and conflicts. And the primary one among them is that the bishop doesn't believe him. So he pushes Juan Diego to repeat his story quite a few times, goes over all the details. And at the end of it, he requests a sign. So um On the last day, when he's supposed to, on the fourth day, when he's supposed to get this sign for the bishop, something happens. His uncle gets very, very sick, is on the verge of death. So he tries to avoid um, Mary by going on the opposite side of the mountain, which we will bring up why this is important later on. But in the course of trying to avoid Our Lady, he ends up on, like I said, on the opposite side, she finds him and then she directs him to go up to the top of the hill, traveling in an east to west direction, which he does. And when he gets to the top of the hill, what does he find? He finds a multitude of precious, shining, colorful flowers, which he then gathers in his toma and takes back down the hill as the sign for the bishop. And when he gets to the bishop, as many of us know, he lets fall the flowers. And when the the flowers fall, her image appears on the tilma. And that's what we understand the Guadalupe story to be today.
2: So basically, um, so so, go on. So oh, I, I, do
1: you want I, me to talk more about flower
2: world? Or? Well, no, 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 Well, I'll just, I'll just go into this, uh, what, what we're seeing in the story. So here we have this story. Okay. And we have three main concepts that we go into in our book. Okay. Number one, the flower world paradise in Xochitlalpan, in Tonacatlalpan, the aspect of the flowers that are gathered into his tilma. So we have the, the, the flower. We also have this term, the god of far and near, and it's all wrapped up in this idea of worthiness, like who is worthy to find the flowers. So with these words, what is happening is that the flower world paradise is actually an ancient indigenous belief system that archaeologists and anthropologists are just starting to discover it. They're calling it flower world. And they're basically saying is that from the very inception, the Olmec period. The Olmecs are really considered the first major civilization of the Americas. So we're talking about 1500 BC right now, mm-hmm. that they developed this concept of the maize field that was filled with flowers and pollinators and butterflies mm-hmm. and all this wonderful things. And, but that was their place of sustenance. So they, they, they believed that this concept that the, the sustenance came from heaven. And this place in heaven was the flower world paradise. Now, the uh, aspect of the flower is that it, it comes from this idea of called an axis mundi, or the way in w- looking at the connection between earth and heaven. When you have north, south, east, and west uh, four points, you could it, you could impose a four-petaled flower over that. And in the center point of that flower, that is the connection to the flower world paradise or heaven. So the flower itself becomes a symbol of this metaphysical connection between earth and heaven. So now I've just described to you two major aspects of the Guadalupe narrative that archeologists and anthropologists are are confirming. They are saying that this four petaled flower is seen all over the place in in Guatemala with the early Mayans, with the Olmecs, you see this on pottery, pottery shards and on murals. You're just you're just seeing this everywhere because ancient Mesoamerican man yearned to connect to heaven. And they would do it through the arts. They would do it through poetry and song poems. And we're going to get into that in just a second. So I've just described for you two major points. Uh, you know, flower paradise flowers. Okay. So now, as we move forward in time, eventually these we find a narrative that comes about of, of these. Uh, points. Later on, uh, Nawa song poetry turns into the way in which they were able to philosophize about the truths of the universe. And essentially the, the primary metaphor that you see all throughout these flower songs is a singer who's calling down inspiration from heaven. In fact, many times he's saying, I'm calling down the flowers from heaven. I'm singing these flowers for it. So flowers become uh, equal to truth, to beauty, everything else. And the primary metaphor is the singer is calling down flowers for him so that he can gather them in his tilma so that he can show them to the lords and princes. So that description right there, as you see, pretty much matches the, the Guadalupe story. So there is a, a primary narrative that uh, Monique can
0: describe. Is this, is, are there any questions or
2: anything so far?
0: What I wanted to do before we continue, I, have you guys ever read Wolfgang Smith? He mm-hmm. is, uh, he's a Catholic. He's 94. He's a very, very faithful, very uh, devout, but extremely intelligent man. He has like 11 degrees. I think it's actually like four or five, but, but he, you know, graduated from Cornell and he was 18 with four degrees or something like that. Uh, he's from Austria. Uh, and that was in, you know, 1946 or something. And, um, he is a big Augustinian and a Platonist in his cosmology. And he Mm. spent a lot of, he spent a lot of time in India in like 1945 when he was a young man and, um, spent time with the, uh, sort of the, the, uh the Vedic monks and things. It's not to Mm -hmm. suggest that there's a, a, we're not saying that Hinduism is the true religion, but what he saw when he was there was the ancient understanding of cosmology, which is almost Mm -hmm. lost. When I was, when I, and it sounded, and he was saying it sounded extremely platonic and Augustinian. So Uh when I was, when I was reading this and I'm trying to, I can't remember the words. He talks about a tripartite universe. Um, which is basically distilled into Augustine and 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 to um, uh, Plotinus, and essentially what you have is you have us in this realm. We have an intermediary realm where it is um, uh, it it is it is eternal but not corporeal, and then you have the eternal realm, which is the top realm or whatever. Uh, if I'm saying, uh, forgive me, Wolfgang Smith, people, if I'm saying it wrong, but it struck me as I'm reading this book that this was the ancient cosmology that was common throughout the world of understanding that there was a hierarchy of of existence and that the fullness and the wholeness (laughs) that you would have in this world without change and with transcendent beauty could be had only by reaching upwards, both physically and spiritually. Does that make sense?
2: Absolutely. That that fits exactly. I'm so glad that you brought that up because I I, I didn't didn't get to the big point of this. See, what what is happening between the flowers and the flower of paradise is there's a transcendental connection. Now, we're not saying that, of course, polytheism and pantheism did exist. You know, there was a corn goddess, there was a war god, there was, you know, there were all these things that existed. But these run parallel, we're saying, underlying, undergirding so many of these concepts, especially in Mesoamerica, is this transcendent platonic realism where the perfect forms, forms exist, exist, that w- through beauty and through the arts, we can get a glimpse of divine and ultimate beauty and divine truth. And so this is heavy it, yeah. stuff. And to think that Mesoamerican man actually had that concept from the very beginning. And what we're trying to say is yeah. that it is in through this trans transcendent concepts that in a way God was able to sneak in, okay. That God was able to give them a concept that eventually flourished, and yeah. it's just as a, a
1: foundation, right? A foundation. As a
2: foundation that was fulfilled later on through the Guadalupe story. So yeah, you, you you just hit the nail on the head, and that's what the prophet,
0: and that's what prophecy is. Okay, excellent. So that's the let's call it the cosmology or the ontology that they have about how they know what they know and what there is to know. And then from there, there are some specifics in the story that lay the groundwork. And for those who have read, for example, Taylor Marshall's book um, on Rome, Eternal City, I think it's called, he touches on the same information that you guys touch in the book from Fulton Sheen, where he talks about how Virgil, is talking about a vir- a virgin will give birth to the savior of the world or something like that. These little, mm-hmm. and the syllab- the syllabine oracles had things that they were saying as well. These little nuggets are throughout these ancient pagan cultures. And um, when they're tapped into, this is where we see a flood of conversions. And it's just like C.S. Lewis's conversion. When Tolkien yes. says to him, Christianity is the myth that came true. And it's like, yes. oh, it's my my heart's desire is finally full and it's what augustine says our hearts are restless until they rest in you um and and it seems to me like that's what was set up with this
2: right in fact um a- as we continue on with this explanation we have flower world you know the different aspects that we're talking about that has been confirmed that have been found throughout uh mesoamerica ancient mesoamerica but that in once we when we get into these flower song poems I, I gave you the primary metaphor, you know, calling down flowers, again, you but there's an even deeper narrative to that. Uh, and Monique will, will explain the for the origin of the songs and, and how that plays out. Oh,
1: we didn't. I thought we...
2: No, we haven't done that yet.
1: Okay. <laughs> I'm losing track of <laughs> yeah, what, sense, like, We got mixed up because we were rehearsing We were rehearsing the, it right before. I'm like, did we talk about that? I okay. know, that's
2: the danger of a series. But I, I know. want to cut that out.
1: Anyway, okay, <laughs> so in the ancient song poem, and you have this singer who represents every man who is looking for these precious sweet flowers of the flower world paradise so it can make him happy so he can be joyful but not only just for himself but for all of his people and so when he's asking all the different creatures in this arena where he can find them, and he's very, it's very specific. There's a lot of details in this area that are all hallmarkers of this flower world paradise that scholars have discovered. Um, they, when they finally lead him in, and it's specifically a hummingbird who leads him into this flower world paradise, or at least seemingly seems like he goes there. And he thinks he pulls it in the flowers in his toma, and he thinks that he takes it To the Lords and Princes to share. We find out in the story that he didn't actually get to go, which is the really sad part about it. And in the story, he explains why he couldn't go. He says it's because how could one who was worthless and afflicted and whose sins on earth be able to go to this flower world paradise? Or in Sursit Laupan and Tonakat Laupan, that actual term is used exactly. And re- year, so, what's kind of fun about that is, even though he's giving the problem for the story, in the same few moments, he also gives a solution of how someone could get to the flower world paradise. And he very specifically says that only the God of far and near in Falcon Milwaukee can make one worthy of this flower world paradise. So we have this paradise lost type of situation. So it's a perfect setup because they have, they're not able to get to the flower world paradise, but if they, somebody could find the flowers, then that will signal to the indigenous mind the route to get there. And we find that fulfilled in, 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 in Juan Diego's story, who actually is able to gather those flowers for for humanity, in his own cloak and his tilma,
2: right, and and I think that that was that was kind of the big aha moment for us mm-hmm. because when we saw this ancient song poem, the singer mm-hmm. fails at finding the flowers. So in a way, he kind of mirrors the Greek tragic hero, kind of like an uh, Oedipus Rex type person who does not who who goes after something but does not obtain it and mm-hmm. therefore fails and is a tragic hero. And when you have that kind of story, and if that story is defining your culture, it's crying out for a redeeming hero, Mm -hmm. somebody who's eventually going to find the flowers. And I know this sounds simple, but that's the way these myths work. Tolkien has written about it. C.S. Lewis has written about it. Um, It turns into and because the Guadalupe story actually Mm -hmm. happened, the Guadalupe story is the myth that became real. Because it it mirrors the story. I, and I mean, when we explain the earlier song poems, even the same birds are met, mentioned from the earlier song poem to, to mm-hmm. the Juan Diego. I the mean, same phrases. What are the, what are the chances, right? So, so the point that we're we're trying to make is that it's 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 a long meta-narrative that's explaining God's salvific plans for the Americas. Juan Diego finds the flowers that the singer did not find in the earlier song poem. He actually, as a baptized Christian, was able to enter into the flower world paradise. Guadalupe introduces herself as the mother of the God and far and near, the one in the earlier poem that makes you worthy to enter the flower world paradise. I mean, there's connection after connection after connection. And
1: it's a perfect story.
2: It, it, it They're all summed up in this and we're just saying and we outline it you know we 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 go through so many pages to say this point after this point is fulfilled this it was a foundation was laid in ancient mesoamerica and it became fulfilled and there's a lot more to it because there was a whole uh society that was based on philosophy that was uh their way of seeing the universe the way that they saw the, the the cosmos but uh, it's fulfilled
0: in this as i said so um that that's that's one aspect of of the of our story well unless anyone think that cuz we're saying connections after connections you show in the book um for people that think that the story of Guadalupe was oh well, sorry the what's the uh what's the long long form narrative of the story called nawan something nikan Ni- 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 that's right sorry yeah Nikamapoa. Ni- um that's basically for people that don't know, we have the sort of part of the message that is part of the church approved, uh, apparitional side of it. Like we have with Fatima, we have these apparitional approved mm-hmm. messages, but then there's an actual longer history that is more than the encounters with our lady. It is, uh, well, it's the whole story. Basically it's the whole story. And this is the Nikomopoa. And in there, there are also these striking similarities between this flower world thing. And some critics would say, well, he's just copying this thing. But you show in the book that it's actually not really possible that could have happened with how it was written, given the distance between when these things were written, the the inability to have these things written down versus having these things oral, and the sort of just there was too many things going on. There were so few copies of this stuff written. Can you explain that to us for the critics who might think that it's just sort of a copycat, whatever?
1: Uh, sure. I mean, even if we look at it historically, um, the Spaniards got there in 1519. The fall of Mexica Empire happened in 1521. The, Aztecs. the Az, uh, yeah, the Aztecs, and in 1531 is when Our Lady appeared. Um, The Spaniards, friars that were there were constantly speaking about the incomprehensibility, not only of the language, but of the metaphors. They kind of tangentially heard about the songs. but They didn't even actually collect the songs until 1559, which is years after the conversions even appeared. And even in the 1560s and 1570s, you have statements from the friars saying we can't understand any of this. It's completely impossible. So if they're having a hard time Comprehending the song poems at that juncture in time, how in the world would they have been able to make it up in fifteen thirty one? So that's just an easy yeah. historical
0: debate. So. Exactly. Yeah, it's uh, it's uh, it's it's pretty easy. But there's people out there that are whatever, they're naysayers and stuff. But that that explains yeah. it perfectly. Understandable. So where should we go from here? There's there's a lot more to this story. Well, I could well, I could add to that.
2: Um, sure. You know, even though it's not uh, the the crux of our book. But we, we felt like we had to kind of clear the air because of the naysayers, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So we bring up the whole idea of who could have possibly been the fraudster, who could have been the one to have made up the story and, and we dive right into it. We mm-hmm. say, well, this author, uh, this figure Antonio Varagliano, uh, he, he was he's a, he's a likely candidate, of course, Bernardino de Sagun perhaps other Franciscan friars. And we, we go through that, but you know it is so unlikely for the reasons that Monique said, but also because of the time period. This was the 16th century, the time of the Spanish Inquisition, the Protestant Revolution, or whatever you want to call it, the Counter-Reformation, the the Council of Trent, the Mexican Inquisition. I mean, there were so many things that were going on at this time period where it would have been unthinkable for any religious to to come up with a syncretic uh, paganistic blend of Guadalupe and, and Catholicism. It, 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 if there was any century to choose, that would have been the worst century. <laughs> it, it, would have been the, it. it would have been the 16th century. So, yeah. I mean, and that's just one point. Of mm-hmm. course, we have direct quotes from mm-hmm. the Franciscans themselves saying, we don't even understand this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, if, it, what, uh, we have to break down when the Guadalupe narrative was actually, when it, when did it come onto the scene? and it came in under controversy this is a whole other tangent right now but in a document that came out in 1556 called the uh, information it was a juridical ecclesiastical document called in, in spanish informaciones de 1556 so uh, the information of 1556 so it, we're go- going a little bit into the weeds right here but this this idea that Guadalupe narrative would have been fake uh, is really hard to prove. If anybody were to, they, they would have had to been some sort of a genius. They would have had to know flower world. They would have had to know the culture so well, the language so well, everything mm-hmm. for this to happen. Just mm-hmm. like like what people will say about the difference between the New Testament and the Old Testament, somebody to have made Jesus up, would just it would just be incredible, the knowledge they would have mm-hmm. to have and the imagination, I suppose.
1: Can I chime in on that real quick? Sure. So just going back to the Old Testament, New Testament thing, a a fundamental part of kind of what we're discussing is that if you look at, just as a reminder to people on how prophecy works, you know, there's 300 to 400 different prophecies that are part of the Old Testament that lay down who Jesus is, right? And I I was looking it up the other day, the mathematical odds of that being able to occur that even just to get eight of those prophecies on point, it would be like one to the 10 in the 17th power. That's just with eight of them. So we're pretty much saying that, you know, when God, you know, he's trying to lay the case or that he, he makes it a point of laying a case, not just for the Hebrews, but also for, for the pagans. So we're we're dealing with um, pagan prophecy quite a bit. And that's when we're bringing up the sybils, And we, we found some instances that are not in the book in China And in Persia and Babylon, there's just a lot of different ways that God is reaching people, no matter where they're at. And all we're saying is just doing the same thing over here in the Americas. It's no different, you know. And so what he did was he used the aspects of what they were attached to this flower paradise and you see and it is a multitude of aspects that make it unique this particular belief system. And you see it throughout the poems, song poem after song poem. And then you see the Nicomapo coming back and echoing it almost exactly. It's profound. And that's kind of where we're coming in and saying, preparatio evangelica, God makes it a point of preparing people for himself. And we see it here and we just love that.
0: So I have a friend who just entered into a traditional seminary. Uh, he's in his second year now. And he was visiting me last Christmas. And he was saying how what was fascinating is when the men who were in the seminary started to separate themselves from the world, completely detox from the technology and all these kinds of things. That they all of a sudden, spending so much time in prayer, actually had a desire and an inspiration to write poetry. And he said that um, it's one thing that at the seminary that they try to inculcate in the seminarians is this the heart of the lover that was so common in the saints. We see this, especially in St. Francis of Assisi. Mm -hmm. And it seems to me that it's, how should I explain this? Even in this pagan culture, before Christ comes there, there's something about men in a simpler time, where even when they were wrong about religion, um, they still had their bearing straight insofar as that they should be in awe of the things that present themselves to them as unique and unrepeatable instances of the divine power in their life. What would you say? I mean, would you say, I guess, if we read through this story, is this something that helps us understand, I guess the beauty of the divine intervention and the miraculous nature of, of, of God's work in Mexico?
2: Absolutely. Um, In fact, it's, Really, kind of the Nahua way was a way to be able to see the world, to be able to look at the creation, and to be able to make this connection from creation and from created things, such as poetry or such as um, arranging beautiful uh, feathers in a certain way. Um, there's so many of these codices where they talk about the the heart of the artist where the artist needs to make a connection to divinity as he's creating. In fact, in the flower song poems, they're called flower and song. And in a way, it's so interesting because, you know, we're both musicians. I'm a composer. Um, we experience that inspiration that comes from the hev- that comes from heaven, that comes from God. We, it's not so much we're feeling that we're creating something, but we're more like a vehicle or a vessel by which creativity can come to us. And the term that they used in Nahuatl is Yol Teot. Yol means heart. Teot means God. So an artist needs to have the heart of God and in order to create. So flower and song, we compare this to a quote that C.S. Lewis brings up where he says it's hard to, to think about abstract things such as divinity and experience it at the same time. Well, we're saying that through the singing, singing or performing music, or especially singing sacred music, the singer is a way to be able to make a connection to divinity through the inspiration that is coming down, that goes back to God. And that's actually the definition of flower and song that the Nahuatl had. So absolutely. And, and, you know, we sometimes. People think, well, we as men, we're not supposed to uh we're not supposed to be involved in these things like poetry and things like that. But you know, courage that men need to have comes from core, comes from heart. So courage is tied into emotions, it's tied into your heart because you're driven by your heart. You're driven by your emotions, and we we kind of need to understand that. So the Nawa had this understanding and we could go into this because actually, in the account itself, Guadalupe refers to the heart of Juan Diego. She refers. She says. She says. You know. Uh, rest. You know. Have to have a tranquil heart. Know that we. I'm speaking to you through your heart. Um, the beginning of that earlier song poem says, "Nino, Yor no noza," which means I ponder within my heart. Where can I find the precious holy flowers? It's everywhere. This was the understanding that the Nahua had, and it was expressed through their art. So that's an, that's an aspect of it.
1: It's a huge aspect of it. And, and, and to
2: address your, your, your question directly about these seminari- seminarians, poetry is really one of the means by which we can, which we can explore abstract ideas because poetry is on another level. We combine words, we combine, combine phrases together that give sort of a metaphorical third meaning. Uh, I, I, it almost sounds funny that we can only really express metaphysical ideas through a metaphor, metaphor <laughs> because it's something <laughs> beyond, right? So, um, you know, we, we should, I think, even as men, be warrior kings, warrior poets, we should read poetry. We should listen to good mu- music every day. Benedict the Sixteenth, in one of his writings, said that he encouraged people to listen to good music, read sonnets, read
0: poetry every single day, so you 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 know what you're fighting for. Yeah, well put. Um, you know, um, when I do some apologetics on scripture and stuff, and people will talk about Genesis and just explain the whole thing away, whatever. And I'll and they'll say it's just poetry, and I say hold on a sec. You don't know what poetry is, because you, poetry is truer than true sometimes, and you don't know what you're saying. You know, um, yeah. uh, there's a Canadian poem, famous poem from World War One, called In Flanders Fields. Maybe you've heard it, maybe you haven't. It's big in the Commonwealth, and it's In Flanders Fields, the poppies blow between the crosses, row on row. That's how it goes. It was written by mm-hmm. a man named John McRae. and he was a military mm-hmm. medic. And uh, he wrote it just as after some battle in Flanders and um, in in, uh, the Netherlands. And um, basically um, it is a poem, but it contains all four levels of scripture. It's it's historical in that he is in this place and there was a battle and there are poppies and there are crosses. It has a moral meaning to it in that he talks about the dangers of war and so forth. It has a uh, tropological aspect in that it talks about the end of things, when he talks about sort of what will become of the the culture and 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 the nature of these young men and so forth, and it also uh, has an allegorical or anagogical aspect to it. I may be mixing them up, um, where he talks about uh, what this symbolizes for the greater meaning of the nature of war, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And the poem is true in a three dimensional way, and this is what we find. In truly religious texts, they're true in a three dimensional way. It is historical. It is metaphorical. It is allegorical, and it is moral. Does that encapsulate sort of the the depth of it? You think? Absolutely, boy.
1: And ironically, just for, just I'm going to set it up for Joseph because he can talk much more deeply about this. But Ooh. the Nawa have this idea, and they even uh, there was a poets' conference in 1490 where they were pondering the meaning of the flowers, and their ultimate conclusion was that flowers are the only truth on earth. And um, but for them, flowers are always connected with music. So I kind of want to set that up for Joseph to kind of run with it, because he has some interesting thoughts on that.
2: Well, you know, it's so interesting, you know, as we said, the uh, Cortez came in 1519. But one of the song poems is actually the, the conference itself, the meeting of the poets, itself is actually expressed in a poem mm-hmm. uh,
1: that in a song sung. poem
2: that's found yeah these by the way these song poems that we're reading were actually sung they were performed and danced uh, they would have been accompanied by a couple of different types of drums they would have been there would have been a circle mm-hmm. of dancers around them mm-hmm. and we make the case that actually when the Guadalupe narrative, would have been uh, after Juan Diego expressed it, it too would have turned into a flower song poem and spread throughout the land. And we can get into that until you want, but the Nahua always expressed everything, especially things that have to be of a divine nature through the arts. So they experienced it emotionally when they heard it, so they would have actually would have heard the Guadalupe narrative performed for an emotional impact. But The thing is, is that what you were just talking about in that poem, you know, the the history of the Iliad, Homer, the Odyssey, they're expressed in verses, they're expressed poetically. This is the foundation of ancient man's learning about the world in which they live in. And perhaps maybe we don't live that way today, We, we should. But, uh, but they did. This is the way in which they understand their, their world and also their, their identity. If you want to talk about Jung or you want to talk about Jordan Peterson or anything like that, this is the way in which they built their culture, their identity, their cultural identity was all surrounded by this. So what we're trying to say is this earlier song poem, these metaphors of gathering flowers, putting this knowledge of truth in your tilma, gathering it and then showing it to the lords and princes was, was fundamental to the indigenous identity. They wanted to find the truth of life and existence. They wanted to know how do I get to this flower world paradise? So we bring in C.S. Lewis to be able to say it, it is through these metaphors that they express this. And of course, this is the myth though. We're in the land of myth, but you know, so is the way in which ancient man, the Greeks expressed themselves. It was a lot of it was through cosmo mythological means, right? A similar thing happened in Mesoamerica. So basically the Guadalupe story is the true myth. It's the myth that came true. It's the one that summed everything up and, um, and Juan Diego, when he finds the flowers, he's finding ultimate beauty, ultimate logos. So he's finding Jesus. Jesus is the flower of truth. And that was the treasure that he had to share. And God gave this bonus miracle, of course, with not bonus, but the, the tilma, the image of the tilma, once again, through an artistic mean uh, means, showing his grace and showing how much he was trying to reach to the people of Mesoamerica. And of course, it I guess maybe the kicker, and we can go into this in a second, but the four-petaled flower, the very one that we were talking about from 1500 BC from the Olmec appears over her womb on the tilma, giving great significance to the concept of logos and this uh, dimension into ultimate truth. So it's all there. It's all packaged. It's all comes together. And I think it had an incredible impact on the
0: Nawa people at that time. That's amazing. Yeah, it's uh it's endless. It's so deep. Um I said we'd go about 40 minutes to now. We're at 50 minutes now. And okay. oh, wow. well, I <laughs> want I want people to if 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 there's more you want to say for sure, but I also want people to not get all the information, because I do want them to actually purchase the book. Um, which there's uh, tons of
1: information.
0: Ha- there's tons. <laughs> there's tons. Way more. But I really want the, the listeners to to purchase this book. Um, if anything, I don't know. This this is, it's like reading a commentary on the Old and New Testament. But if if the Revelation was in was in Mexico, it's it's so fascinating. Before we go, mm-hmm. are there any points you'd like to bring up in the next few minutes?
1: I think this is something that we always like to end it with, this whole idea of God being in control of history, especially with the world that we're living in now and all of the chaos, just as a reminder that if God can lay out 3,000 years and have the patience to do so for the Mesoamerican people so they can convert, how much more so can he do so now, even though it may not seem like it? I mean, we have that faith. We believe Guadalupe is a wonderful reminder of the details God pays attention to and so that would probably be the last one of the last yeah, things I, I want to say. I,
2: I think I think the, what was so interesting about this is that the the indigenous the Nawa did not know that God was implanting things that God mm-hmm. was setting things up mm-hmm. to to come to this point and um, but it did happen and 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 the same thing if it's happened if it happened then why perhaps is is it not happening now? Mm-hmm. Perhaps all these things that we're looking around us, that, that, we're, that we're despairing about, that we're saying, you know, it's hopeless, mm-hmm. and everything's heading in this one direction, that perhaps God is actually using that to be able to set us up so we can see his glory, and that through the Immaculate Heart of Mary, that we, we will be saved. This, she, she will come in and, and take care of all of this for us. So that's 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 beautiful.
0: Happen. Well, as St. Paul says, where sin abounded, grace did abound all the more. So the Aztec Empire was extremely sophisticated and and amazing in many ways, but they did have this bad side of the human sacrifice. But this was, in my opinion, it's it's a little bit, you know, macabre, but it it was a prefigurement of of Christ in the sense that they knew that the only way to appease the sins of the people, They were wrong about the gods, but they understood that there was this existential breach that couldn't be fulfilled by mere mortal means. They just didn't have the right victim to die, and they didn't know it was Christ who had already died for them. Um, and, um, Mm -hmm. And this is going to replay throughout history, ladies and gentlemen. We are going to have these periods of darkness and these periods of renewal until... The end times which will come whenever who knows i'm not an end times preacher and it's not up for me to say maybe tomorrow maybe in a thousand years i don't know but um joseph and monique this has been an absolute pleasure of mine and i really thank you for sharing this information with me
1: thank you so much it's a you pleasure the pleasure is ours thank you so much thank you
0: <laughs> all right well ladies and gentlemen again guadalupe and the flower world prophecy hippies like to talk about flower power here's the actual flower power and um you can find this book yeah i'm a dad i make dad jokes it is what it is but um you can find the um the link for this um uh, book it's in the description box for this video or if you're listening on spotify itunes whatever it's there as well so if you're listening take out your phone click that link and give it a quick purchase it's from sophia and um and that's all i got anything else you'd like to say
2: no, just thank you for having us. And it was a real pleasure. We've been big fans of yours
0: for a long time.
2: It's really special for us to
0: be yeah. on your show today. Oh, well, really thank well. you. That's that's yeah. very it's very um <laughs> that's very humbling. And also we gotta say thank you to Father Murr for pushing this through. I don't know if we mentioned Father him, Murr, but that's... mutual friend. Father Murr, you're a legend, so good for you. Um, all right, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, this has been the Kennedy Report. Let me know what you think in the comments till next time. God bless you all. God
2: bless you. God bless you.